Welcome, everyone, to episode 41 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernanke. My special guest this week and next week, and actually the week after that, is Travis House. Now, I knew that there was a lot to talk about. I kind of thought I'd get maybe a couple episodes out of this. I didn't expect three, but hell, I'm good with it. There's a lot, a lot, a lot to discuss. In fact, enough to really write a book about, which he actually did. Uh, Create Your Own Light, Finding Post-Traumatic Purpose. That's available at Amazon right now, Kindle edition and paperback. But this guy, former U.S. Marine, uh, professional firefighter, police officer, comedian, um, been through some really traumatic events, came out on the other side. He's now talking about it. On, on this particular episode, he's going to discuss a little bit about his childhood, about firefighter cancer, about the uh, the Charleston 9 recovery efforts that he actually volunteered for to, to go in and find his brothers, including one of his really, really good friends. He, he talks about actually going finally to a clinician after being so hell-bent against it and, and really keeping people away from that, making fun of people seeking help to finally where he was able to go get help himself. And the fact that he's talking about it, you know, not just writing a book, but going out, talking to people, telling everybody that he went through, you know, suicide, at least thoughts of suicide attempts where, you know, gun is actually in his mouth. So um, it really is a happy ending for him. And he's able to put this message out. And I'm, I'm so privileged to be able to help him put that message out to the masses. So uh, it's kind of uh, all this is told more of a Quentin Tarantino style. It's all over the place. Uh, there's not really a method, but it's all going to come together at the end through all three episodes. So without further ado, let's press play on episode one with Travis Howes. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. I got my special guest with me today, Travis Howes. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. How's everybody? I'm great, man. I got a huge cup of coffee sitting here with me. I'm ready to talk some shit with you. We were both up last night. I was on shift. You're just an old guy that had to pee, apparently. That's right. <laughs> you, were, you were up stalking my Facebook. And I was getting alerted, and I was like, "Who's this hottie?" And it wasn't. It wasn't just Facebook. It was uh, <laughs> Twitter. It was Match.com, Adult Friend Finder. It was all those stuff. I was farmers only. <laughs> Who goes to farmers only? Farmers. Are there really chick farmers though that like really like like look? I got a, I got this field of cucumbers that just ain't working. I really I need a real farmer. I just like the jingle to that. Isn't it's that cool? catchy. What cucumbers you don't or have to be lonely? <laughs> That's bad that uh, you know the song. I didn't know the song. Oh, little fetish of mine. Anyway, we're starting off <laughs> nice with this show. There's a lot of stuff to cover here. Um, straight, let's go straight to. I mean, there's enough. There's enough shit to where you can actually write a book about it. Yeah, I probably could write a book. Yes. So. And we'll we'll hit on that. I mean, throughout and and do the big plugs all at the end and all that kind oh, of. Oh wait stuff. a second! I did write a book. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, for all those listening, it's called "Create Your Own Light." There's there's my first plug. <laughs> We're gonna keep track. It's plug number one. <laughs> no, Speaking so, of plugs, you need some hair plugs, dog. Oh man, I just Love wear a hat head. when I'm at. My no man, my wife actually loves bald heads, and I see I'm 42, and I have the thickest hair. For 42 if she walked in here she'd look at you she's like see you need that no i see i would like rather have that really and for no, all our man. listeners so you're just getting audio i at least have the pleasure of looking at this handsome gentleman in front of me so Go that far yeah but hey i'm on uh first day first morning of vacation i'm off until the end of june you- so i will i'm gonna grow something i don't know what it's gonna look like yeah oh, so you have the whole month yes sweet man so and i'm going nowhere but that's okay i'm gonna hang out here be with my family i got a honey-do list you know that long i remember when i was on the job in charleston as a firefighter man and we take i take a month vacation and after like the third shift i would drive by my firehouse my guys would be on duty and i'm just wondering how they're doing i couldn't wait to get back i don't know if it's still like that but that's back in the day when the job was so much fun we would show up to work an hour early i talk about that in the book i think you remember being a seven o'clock man yes is uh what i talk about and we just love being at work man and you were you one of those guys that stayed a little bit later too every time 
we'd stay and shoot the shit and, and, and kind of have breakfast with the next crew sometimes. And uh, guys would be like, go home. It's like, man, what do I got to do today? This is when <laughs> I was single, though, and I didn't have family. Sure. Um, but during the summertime now here, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. This is a, a, a huge boating community. I mean, we're right on the ocean and everything. So during when the summer cranked up, you know, it's like, hey, look, I got to get, I got to go drop boats. And then it's eight o'clock. Girls are waiting. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, no, I don't really. First but... we, <laughs> first we, first we go by the gym and do chest and tries. Never leg day. It's always just chest day. So you go do some chest workouts, then go jump on the boat, put on your golden tan and ride. Nice. Nice. So, wow, you've got quite a just, uh, um, how, what do you even call it? Um, it's too damn this early. Long. This, this monster. I could take this a couple different ways. How about your resume? Why that, why that word is, uh, escaping me this morning. I don't know, but, uh, uh, I mean, the accolades started early class clown junior high check high school repeat champion i mean you know i feel like i should have gotten a ring for that <laughs> i mean did you is it just a title in the yearbook and that was that title and a picture in a yearbook but you know and when you read my book you saw that i actually relinquished my crown in my senior year because it pissed my dad off so badly that i was class clown and that i pretty much had no future he's like what are you gonna be a fucking comedian and actually it turns out I was. Um, so I forewent my, um, my photo opportunity to solidify my existence as the class clown of Hilton Head High School 1996. And I gave it to the runner up, a guy named Peter. So he got his picture in the book, but we, we really know who won that. Is he a comedian too? No, not at all. <laughs> Boo, Peter. <laughs> all right. So from there, the logical choice for a class clown. Yes. Let's Logical choice. Let's go into the Marines, but not just the Marines. Let's go into the infantry. Um, so a lot of people would say, oh, you went into the Marines because you were a dumbass and, and you went in the infantry because you were an extra dumbass and that's all you could qualify for. That's not true. I actually, I actually scored pretty decently on my ASVAB, but I knew at an early age I wanted to be in the Marines and I knew I wanted to be in the infantry. Um, I don't know why. I just, I was attracted to that. And when I thought of the Marine Corps, I didn't think of guys driving trucks or doing office work or, or you know, flying planes and stuff. Well, let's, let's back up. I didn't qualify for that. <laughs> um, but when I thought of a Marine, I thought of the guys in the jungles, the deserts, the swamps with the weapons and stuff. And it was just really appealing to a young man like me and, and needed to, um, I needed some of that in my life. So I got some. Nice. Yeah. Were you able to stay out of trouble in the Marine? No, absolutely not. Um, well, I say out of trouble, like I didn't get into, uh, administratively, I never got into trouble. I had, um, I did very well in the Marines. I had, you know, good conduct medals and I won um, some really good achievements, some awards. Um, and, uh, but as far as trouble with my uh, personality, yeah, I, uh, I was a very, very jokey guy. I, I played a lot of pranks on people. Uh, in boot camp, I stayed in trouble. You know, you read about that in the book, Plug 2 um it's actually four or five but that's okay well i'm from south carolina what do you expect <laughs> 48th in education brother <laughs> so um yeah so i was constantly joking around with people and um that was a problem at times but you know in, in that world there you're also sur surrounded by like-minded people so it's like it's one big melting pot of people having fun but the problem with me is I didn't never knew when to turn it off ever. I mean, I could be serious when we needed to, but if I found any little reason to be jokey, I would. So did you have a nickname like today, week one, day one, you know, I always, again, I go to full metal jacket, private <laughs> joker, private cowboy. Did you have, were you a private anything? No, man, this wasn't the movies. I didn't have a, um, a nickname or anything like that. But, you know, once I got into the fleet Marine force, I gave a lot of guys nicknames that stuck. They, and we still to this day, uh, their name stuck, but I would never, never got a nickname. I was just house. I mean, it was just, um, that was it boring. I know. I wish I had something better for you. Like, but I don't That's animal okay. mother, something like the guy on full metal jacket, but that, I wasn't well, animal. No, no, it's well at the firehouse. You know, my first name is not Jim. It's, fucking 
fucking Vernica. Well, you saw what my nickname was in the uh, in the book. Do you remember? At the fire department? Did you no, read the book? Remind me. I did read the book. There's a lots of words, though. And I can't remember There's that word. There's only 88,000 words, man. <laughs> oh, that's um, all. They called me Scrotum. That's right, Scrotum. Yes. <laughs> yes. I got that. So as a young man, I started hanging around the firehouse in my teen years. And I have no idea. It's not like I was walking around whipping out my junk at the firehouse. But they called me Scrotum. And uh, it stuck. And so when I came back out of the Marines after being gone for four years, that's how they welcomed me. Welcome back, Scrotum. Nice. <laughs> and they welcomed you back with a job. Hey, do you, want, do you want to be one of us? Yeah. Now, this this is what? Year, what, 2000? Yeah, year 2000. But you got to think, man, I had already known that. I mean, this was a smaller department, three stations. I can't remember how many guys, maybe three shifts, 40 people, something like that. I don't know. But I knew them all. You know, and I went away in the Marines, and then when I came back four years later, I hadn't seen any of them. And then when I came back, um, my buddy Derek went, went to see him, and he walked me across the hall, walked me into the chief's office, and asked, he's like, Chief, you remember Travis? He's like, yeah, I remember Scrotum. Come on in. And so myself and uh, Derek and the chief, we sat there, and we talked, and I ended up walking out of there with a job. Just that easy. Pretty simple, huh? That's, it's that's... just like it's still like that today, right? <sighs> Not where I'm at. <laughs> Not where I'm at. Well, we'll that talk was, about it. You're, I mean, you're a, you're ahead of me, but that's just um, the hiring on process was a world of difference, and and not just at your first apartment in Bluffton. Yeah. You know, your second apartment being Charleston. Charleston? Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, compared to, you know, 2001, you know, rookie school, civil service test, all that kind of stuff which I'm sure is, is what is how it's done now. I'm guessing maybe I'm wrong. If you had a heartbeat down here and you knew the right people, you had a job and we can talk about the hiring process, how it was. Cause I, I love talking about the Charleston hiring process back in the day. Um, but I don't want to get ahead of, uh, get ahead of ourselves. Cause I think you wanted to back up and maybe go over a few things from, from early life. Sure. Before we get to that point. So, well, you know, okay, when you read a, a typical book, autobiography, you know, everybody usually touches on their childhood. And uh, most, of them, most of them happy, you know, everything is good. And then, you know, the story starts in adulthood. And that is not necessarily the case with you. You had a lot of shit happen to you pretty yeah. early on, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the, the quotes you have in this book that I just, I'd love because I, I kind of feel the same way is just stacking onto the pile and you were stacking stuff on the pile pretty damn early. Yeah, man. So my trauma was like pancakes my entire life, man. Just let's just keep stacking it up until that, until that fucker tumbles over, you know, let's stack it up and then we'll put some syrup on it, you know, and, and, and just before you know it, you got to, you got to stack of pancakes all the way to the ceiling with nowhere to go. And so they have to fall over and that's where all the, uh, emotional turmoil um happened for me but yeah it started at a extremely early age for me at uh at 15 being that i'll I'll touch back on this that i was hanging around the firehouse so much back in the day um i got to go on my first real emergency call and i write about this in the book and i was so excited because you know most firefighters police officers whoever it may be first responders if you're you're trying to get into the um, emergency um medical field as a even an EMT or a paramedic, we all remember that first call getting on that, whether it be that ambulance, a police car, that fire truck and ride, you never forget it. And I'll never forget mine because my first real call going on was the, um, was the, um, was a line of duty death of a, of a fellow firefighter, you know, and I was only 15. And I remember going to the call. We didn't know what it was. It was, it was just an automobile accident in a, in a joining uh, mutual aid jurisdiction. And we were going to this call and I remember screaming down the highway, lights and sirens. I'm 15, my head's hanging out the window. I couldn't, this is just amazing. It felt like, like the movies, man. You're just smiling ear to ear. You're going to help somebody. Cars are, you know, pulling left, pulling right out of the way. And you're just this big freight train coming down the road, going towards your, your scene. And then when we get there, we find out it's a firefighter, you know, with a concrete truck on top of a car. Um, and the, I remember it was on top of a bridge and, and 
between Bluffton and Beaufort, South Carolina. And I remember being on top of that bridge that day or that morning. And it was, um, the weather was very nice. It was warm. It was July morning, July 9th, 1993. It's a Friday. <clears throat> and uh, the breeze was coming across the bridge and everything. And we're standing beside this car and all these grown men, you know, I'm 15. Now these are grown men, these firemen uh, from both departments. They're crying. I mean, they're just emotionally distraught. You can see it. They're still doing their job. They're professional. But they realized this was a, a firefighter from Hilton Head, which was another um, jurisdiction right near him. And he was just coming off of duty. His name was Sammy Singleton. And uh, he, what happened was he was backed up in traffic and a uh, concrete truck couldn't stop and uh, just barreled right on top of his car. So we, we were on that bridge for three or four hours, maybe even longer that morning. Um, pulling Sammy's car out from underneath that truck. And I was just 15 and I couldn't do much. So I was giving them, um, I was just giving them cribbing, you know, to help stabilize the vehicle until they could get it raised and stabilized enough to where they could pull Sammy's car out with a tow truck winch. And then what we saw inside of that car, I'll never forget. Um, and then we get back in the fire truck and we ride back to the firehouse and the the firefighter that let me ride the truck that morning we were just it was just he and I because they it was a mutual aid they were requesting um our tanker unit so we took that to him he let me get on the truck but the whole ride back was just very very somber I'll never forget he didn't say a word to me I didn't say a word to him we we're just in our own own headspace and uh yeah so at 15 that started um but actually you know I don't, I don't know if we're really going to get into this or not, but it even started before that. I had a friend of mine, a good childhood friend. He, uh, his father shot his entire family and then shot him and then killed himself. And then another friend of mine, his cousin shot him and killed him on accident. Um, so there's three little pancakes right there, just starting to get stacked up early. And, you know, in the book, I talk about even that, that call with Sammy that morning on the bridge wasn't my last fatality call before I became an adult and went to the Marines. I, I kept hanging around the fire department and I found myself going on more calls with these guys and uh, I couldn't do much and, but I could ride and I was witnessing multiple fatalities on a pretty regular basis before I was 18. Um, and I was becoming numb to it all. And it wasn't really affecting me. I was just becoming numb to human life, I think. Didn't realize it at the time. And we, we never do, I don't think, until years later, until we get to our tipping point, which we can certainly talk about later. Back, back then, I imagine it was, you know, you mentioned on your ride back, you didn't talk. At the firehouse, did anybody talk? Or was it just deal with it yourself, suck it up, buttercup kind of mentality? Um, it's always the, the fire service that I'm familiar with. I've been away from it for 10 years. I'm still very, very involved in the fire service. I, I still speak professionally about post-traumatic stress, uh, the recovery process. Um, I talk about finding purpose in life again. And so I'm still affiliated with the fire service to an extent at these, um, these speeches that I give at these conventions or whatnot. Um, but back then, yes, it was a hey, suck it up. We don't want to talk about it. We didn't, you didn't talk about it. We got back and it's, hey, let's back the rig in. Let's get it cleaned off. Let's get ready for the next run, you know, because we got somebody else's worst day is right around the corner. And that's just how it was. And I think it's changing, but I don't think it's changing enough and rapidly enough because I feel like we as first responders need to decompress. We need to talk about these things. And I was the first one. Look, I was, I was as alpha male as you can get. And I buried everything in my life. And you read that book, you saw where that got me. It got me nowhere. And it got me on the business end of my pistol several different times. And that's where it ultimately leads when, when we're too proud to speak or to ask for help. And we need to do better taking care of one another. Because the way we as firemen or cops or whatever, hey, man, let's go to the bar. Let's have a drink and we'll talk about it. And you may talk about something over a couple of drinks. But then guess what? When you leave, you're going home alone. You're going home with those empty thoughts, with those feelings. You're not, you don't have your faculties about yourself. And you're extremely vulnerable. And that's what I was doing back in the day when, when, when I finally reached that point in my life. Years ago, I was just drinking myself closer to death. 
And I think that's what we all do. And nobody understands us like us, you know, it's, it's pretty sad. No, you're, you're right. We, uh, you know, we push our old school friends away. I mean, even probably some of your Marine friends away and, and you're in the friends you grew up with. And we ended up just talking with each other because we're the only ones that get it. That's it. I have a circle now of one person, really. And this isn't to be funny. I really have one person that I call every single day. I talk to every single day. And I, I put myself in that position because of the lifestyle that I chose. I am a very abrupt person, I'm a very matter of fact person. I don't want to be callous. I don't mean to speak out and to lash out at people. But this prof these professions of ours, ultimately over time, they carve away at your soul, man. And, and they mold us into these, this, this person that really doesn't want to have any interactions with civilization. And that's speaking 100% honestly about myself and people that I've seen go through the same things. And I'm not saying it's true for everybody, but we're more susceptible to that type of behavior than I feel most professions are because we get so jaded. We're so traumatized. We won't come out and say it because we're too proud. We're too tough because to appear weak or to, Hey, I got a problem. You know, that's that old mindset where I come from. I think that whole suck it up thing. I understood why, let's say, I, I say our forefathers, if you will, because I'm no longer on the, in, the, in the job, but those before us to suck it up. It was, it was this mentality to, to protect us. I get it. But at the same time, I think it's in the long run, it was killing more of us than we could ever imagine. Cause we, we can only suck up so much. It's like when you fill up a water balloon, right? If you're, if the water balloons, your brain and the water's the trauma and you're filling that son of a bitch, eventually it's got nowhere to go. It has to bust. You can only, you can only put so much trauma into your brain housing group. And that's what happened with me. I never could have fathomed the amount of trauma that I was going to be exposed to. And it, when it reaches tipping point, uh, I'm, uh, I'm telling you, it's, you can't let it get there, guys and girls. You gotta, you gotta do something before it gets to that point. You're going to end up on the business end of your pistol. You ended up at some point, eventually getting professional help, going to a clinician. Yeah. Were they able to help at all? So yes. You're, and you're, you're pretty far. I mean, again, you're talking, you're talking suicide attempts. You're talking major alcoholism. Mm -hmm. uh, anger issues. Oh yeah. Major. Yeah. They were, they were able to help. Um, because here's why Jim, you're in my firehouse, right? I'm, I'm in my, in my house, we had eight guys. We had four on the engine, four on the ladder, right? Every one of those guys was pretty much like me with the exception of a few here and there. Right. And you had three shifts of people. I had in my mind an image to uphold. I was a tough guy. I was a big brute dude. You know what I mean? And I was a very proud person. Look where I came from before I was there. I was a Marine. I was a firefighter. I grew up with a father. You read in this book that raised me tough as nails. There was no other option. So my mind had been um, transformed into not being weak at any point in my life. You shoulder everything and you carry it all and you show no signs of weakness. So I couldn't tell any of them. It got to a point um, where I knew I needed help. And this was after, you know, I was crying in my living room as a grown man with a pistol in my mouth with a bottle of whiskey next to me, um, tasting the, the metal of the barrel in my mouth, pulling the, the trigger on my, my weapon just to hear it click before I loaded it and actually pulled it. And I knew I needed help. And that night when I pulled that trigger right to the point where I felt like it was going to go off and my brain, brains were going to paint the wall behind me, I let, I pulled off, I let, I let go of the trigger and I was like, I got, I got to, I got to get help, you know, because I felt like there's more, there's gotta be more to this. And so I went to my therapist and this is how it helped me. Sorry to get long winded on that question, but I'd never talked to anyone about this stuff. My captain who was on the body recovery team with me of my nine Charleston firefighters, um, that night, June 18th, 2007, we had several different body recovery teams. We had four or five guys on my team. My captain, my captain was on my team with me and we never talked about it for two and a half years later. I was still in the job after that fire. We never spoke a word of it. Nothing. 
You know why? Because we're too proud. And I didn't want to show him weakness. He didn't want to show me weakness. I could see it in him. He could see it in me. But we wouldn't fucking talk about it. Right? Here's how it helped me. When I went to, um, when I went to therapy, I was against it. Man, I was almost like a, um, a closet homosexual in the NFL, right? I was pretending to be this big, tough man hiding behind something that I was, that I was ashamed of, right? I was, so in my, my shame was going to therapy. I wouldn't, I didn't want to tell anybody I was going to get help. <clears throat> and when I went in there and never spoken a word of this, these traumatic events in my life to anybody, I sat down with a complete stranger and almost felt a sense of anonymity. And when I spoke about these things, it, 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 I couldn't shut it off. It just kept coming out and coming out. And when, dude, when I left her office, it had felt like I'd taken a fucking thousand pounds off of my back. I was crying. It was emotional. I was in fear of judgment before I went in there. But these counselors are so professional. When you go in there, dude, you, could, you can't feel any more comfortable than what I felt. I sat down. She didn't even say a word to me. I think I spoke for several hours about trauma from childhood on and I relived events right there in her office. And I went, I went back to work. I continued going back to work, but I was still ashamed to let anybody know I was getting help. Eventually my captain knew and my battalion chief wouldn't, that he knew. But other than that, I still had an image to uphold. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying is this, that's the ridiculous part. I felt like I still had to be this tough guy. I, I couldn't, let people know I was getting help. What, what's there to be ashamed of? And, you know, if we go out as, let's say if a cop gets in a foot pursuit, breaks his leg, chasing a, a bank robbery suspect, even gets shot in the process. What does he do? He goes to a hospital, he gets help. And when he comes back, chances are his brothers are high-fiving him, man. Yeah, hey, you did a kick-ass job, whatever. But why is it not okay if we hurt our minds on a call? I had to pick up nine of my dead friends. I had to identify them inside of a building. I had to put them in body bags. We had to cut them out from underneath twisted steel and metal all night long. We were in that building doing that. How is it not okay that I go and get help for the injury that I sustained in my brain for that? It's not okay. You get, you get um, typecasted, you know, and people start labeling you and they think you're just mentally not stable. What happens is you become unstable when you don't get help. Right. I, I, I did a, I did a, a speech for the FBI SWAT team and, um, had this big SWAT summit here in South Carolina. And I told them, I said, look, man, when you guys are stacking up on a door, okay, you got, let's say you have 12 guys in your stack and you're getting ready to kick that front door and, um, and go into this room. Let's say your point man has been on multiple traumatic calls. He shot and killed innocent people on, on a call previously, didn't mean to. Do you need him at his worst or at his absolute best, right? Do you want him burying all that shit before he's going in this room, second guessing himself and all that? Or do you want him laser focused on his job? He's been, been getting help. He's worked on his, on his traumatic injuries. And now he's the best version of himself possible. That's the guy I want on that door. Same as guy on my ladder company, same as guy on my hose team. It's the same exact thing. Get help and be stronger for whatever you had to go through. But we don't do that. We bury it. Sorry, I got one winded. No, no, no. You're good. This absolutely. <laughs> Two follow-up questions, if I may. All right. Number one, could you talk about making that initial call? Like, how did you even know who to call back then? Or, I mean, just okay. I know you reached your breaking point, but that that first call, knowing that you you admitting that stuff's not right, you need help. So back then, we didn't really have anything um, in place to help us. They, they brought in counselors from out of town. They formed really quickly. They formed a firefighter peer support team of um, people that were not firefighters from our department. They were actually trained clinicians. So right off the bat, there was headbutting and there was a trust issue. Like, we don't know these people. And we were thinking, if we go in there and they think we're crazy, we're going to lose our jobs. You know what I mean? So... The help was available. We just were not picking up the phone and using it. And I was speaking out against it. I would tell other guys, hey, if you call them, you're a fucking pussy. I was like, they, they've never held their dead friends in their arms. They've never been to um, burn up babies inside of a fire. They don't know what we experienced. They read it out of a book, how to treat you. I was like, do not fucking go there. 
it's not going to help you. I was that guy, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, but I, it's it's honest. I have to I have to say it. The good thing about that is you're right. A lot of them don't have that experience, and that's why they can sit down and just listen to you, and they can actually look at it through a different lens versus our lens and help you see things a different way sometimes. Um, so I knew, to answer your question, I knew the number to call. I just refused to do it until it got to that point. And then when it got to that point, I picked up the phone and set my pride to the side and, and made the call. One of the hardest things you ever done? Best thing I ever did. But yeah, at the time, because I was so proud. You know, we, we feel like I'm this, I'm this uh, superhuman. You know, we, we, we put on this armor. We, we shield everybody from who we are, our families, our friends, um, civilians. And we just, we're afraid to take that armor off we're and be like, human. We're like two different, there's two sets of us. Yeah, oh yeah. I You're can only imagine you, right. Marine, police yeah. officer, firefighter, this yeah. facade on the outside, just how yep. you are. And then inside, just turmoil. Inside, I was a lost, helpless, confused coward to an extent. You know what I mean? And I was, um, and I say coward because I've always stood up for what's right, not in that sense. I was a coward because I was afraid of the truth for my own self. I was afraid to not be this thing that I'd made up about myself in my own mind. Does that make sense? It does. And I was afraid to admit that. That's where the cowardness came in. Follow the part two of that question uh, that I was going to ask you is, at what point did you feel comfortable talking about this? Talking about, you know, basically doing a 180 and saying, no, I got help and it did help me. Because that's, uh, people don't probably see that coming when you're, when you're this way for so long and all of a sudden you go completely opposite direction. It takes years, man. And for me, this is, this is kind of what happened. If you know, we're going to get into all of this. I'm um, for the people that are listening who don't know, I'm a professional comedian and I know it's hard to, to understand that now, but you'll see kind of where that got came, came from. And I'm a professional speaker. Me being able to open up about this didn't come until years later, right? I kept it as big of a secret as I possibly could. And then what I realized is even that was hurting me, even though I was getting help, right? I still wasn't being 100% honest with myself. Why was I burying all of this? What was I ashamed of, right? Was I ashamed that I had experienced these massive traumatic experiences in my life? What's there to be ashamed of, right? I... It, there came a point in my life where and we get to this later is I had to accept and own everything that had happened to me. That's where I got comfortable talking about it. I owned the fact that I was injured, right? I accepted the fact that all of these things happened and no matter what I did, no matter how I felt, no matter how badly, badly I treated to other people, that wasn't going to change the fact that all this shit had happened to me that's where it came in and that's where i was able to get honest with everything when i started opening up and speaking publicly about traumatic injuries and that wasn't until the first effort was in 2016 at a um at a fire conference i was asked to speak in front of 200 fire service chaplains about post-traumatic stress syndrome about the um signs and symptoms and a little bit about my story I was doing an event down there, a private comedy event, and a, a friend of mine was uh, asked me to speak to these chaplains who were having another conference. And I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. And I thought I was ready to speak about it. I went in there, and, and I think this is in the book. I shut down. I was on stage for a few minutes, and I, I broke down crying. And here's, here's a man I've never really been emotional, um, in front of, definitely in front of a lot of people. I've always contain my emotion and uh i had boogers running down my face i was so emotional talking about what i'd been through and it was reliving that on stage it hurt 
but I saw the impact that it had on that room full of fire service chaplains when they got up after 20 minutes of me speaking and received a complete standing ovation from these people and a line of people hugging me, telling me, thank you for sharing my story. I knew there was something to it. And I knew that I needed to somehow talk to more people about this because it's needed. We're not used to hearing this shit. And we're certainly not used to seeing people like me talk about it openly. Good. Yeah. Absolutely. Did that answer your question? It, it did. It did. Um, I mean, it, it, it took almost 10 years for you to speak openly after, you know, a huge incident. Yeah. Um, I was running from everything, man. And I would, I thought when I was out of the fire service for good, I thought, all right, I'm, I'm past my problems. I'm not in that environment anymore. I'm, I'm a professional comedian now. I'm traveling the world. I'm going overseas doing shows for the troops. I'm getting on television. I got an album on Sirius XM radio. I'm, I'm beyond all that. And the truth was, I was not. I was still dealing with that shit very, very much. My home life was affected. I fucking ruined friendships because of what had happened to me and my unwillingness to to talk about it and be honest with myself you know i had to i had to have a, a long sit down with myself and be completely honest and own everything i had i had done the relationships and bridges i had burned and why i did it it's because i was being selfish you know it's uh wow 10 years later, at that point in time, you're already doing stand-up. You're used to a live crowd. It's not a, a big deal for you. I'm sure you, I'm assuming you still get a little jitters before you got there, a little nervousness. It's not I don't, probably necessarily a bad thing, but then to talk about that, to talk about a different subject that's so personal, that that does, that is a lot of courage. That's, that's hard to do. I can, you know... Uh, I've spoke about cancer so many times all over this country and in Canada. And I had to switch it up and do a behavioral health one this year. And it was so damn uncomfortable. I not, and not uncomfortable. I just, I wasn't used to it. It was just awkward. So I can only get a fragment of what you went through and to speak about it the first time and then continue to speak about it. And then to even write a book about it and then be on this podcast now. Yeah, I mean, every time you're opening up these wounds, but you're doing it for the greater good of others. Well, dude, it's um, it is hard, but it's 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 necessary because I'm tired of it. I'm just I'm tired of seeing people and, and these you know complete strangers, but they're not. They're in our family. You know, they're in our blue family, our red family, our green family. They're hurting themselves. And I know how I know how lost they are because I was there. They feel they feel this sense of helplessness that only we that have been there understand, right? It's like you in the emergency services, you only talk to firefighters about your experiences on certain fire scenes. You don't talk to your civilian friends about it. Why is that? Because they don't relate, right? Well, I'd, sh I'd shield stuff from like I'll keep stuff from my family, from my wife. I'm better about it now, but for a long time, I, I like it's. I felt it was better for them not to know. Like they don't. I don't want them to be worried about me. You're exactly right, and that's what we do. So those of us who are in a different boat, who are feeling suicidal or feeling like you know, there's no value in life anymore, they shield people from that as well. They don't really throw up a whole lot of signs, and the signs are very subtle. And if the family members or the brotherhood doesn't recognize that, that's why when these people check out and they blow themselves away, you hear people say, oh my gosh, I never knew and this and that. And it's like, no, because we're not going to tell you because of that. We're trying to shield you from that. We're carrying something you wouldn't understand it anyway. I can't come to you if you don't feel the same way as I do. I can't come to you and say, hey man, look, I feel hopeless. I feel helpless. I feel like a burden to my family. I feel like I have zero purpose in life anymore. Um, all I see around me is death. Every time I look at my kids, I, I picture them dead. 
I picture my wife dead. I picture myself dead. Uh, and I see all these scenes of me flashing in front of my eyes um, of, of suicide and how, how I'm going to kill myself. And this, I mean, you live in that world so long, it becomes a reality. And when it's, when it's time, you just check out, but I can't come to you and, and somebody who's not feeling the same way and explain that to you where you really, really understand it, you know? And that's why I do that. That's why I put my shit out there. I don't care. I don't care what people think anymore. I don't, I'm, I'm not afraid of being judged anymore because you know what i've seen the effects of my story I've, I've i've seen it i've lived it i've seen other people benefit from it that my story is not hurting people i know it's not going to heal the world i'm not trying to be the messiah or the the ultimate emergency services personnel doctor but i know i've helped countless people with my story because those people have reached out to me personally and i don't put this on facebook I don't, hey, look what I did today. You know what I mean? But I have people come to me and Travis, I'm here today because I heard your message. I heard your story. I was on the brink of killing myself. And these are emergency service brothers. They're still on the job today, healthy now, because they went and got help. All the people that I've helped in emergency services, man, I'm telling you what, there's no better feeling. It always feels good when you can help other people. But dude, when you can help one of our own, one of our hard-headed own brothers and sisters it's an amazing feeling man it really is and that's why you know when you ask me to do this i'm more than happy to do it let's do it let's talk about it let's talk about that uncomfortable shit one person i promise you i know one person will hear this and they will take a good hard look at themselves inside and say you know what i'm wearing that armor too and it's okay to be fucking human it's okay to have emotions it's okay to to hurt this ain't a movie. We're not superhumans, man. We are human beings. We are just like the people we help. We're no different. No. You know, I I knew obviously you and I were going to talk today and I've just been thinking about about myself. I was I was doing my own reflecting and first of all, you mentioned you and I working at the firehouse together. That may not happen because <laughs> I'm an asshole just like you. And I know I took it out on all my guys. And there was some point, and I was trying to think if I don't know if there was an actual incident or some reasoning, but at some point I I kind of chilled out a little bit. I know I had my, my current rookie was fearful of coming to my station because oh, yeah. I was there and I was I was gonna just destroy him. I was gonna fuck with him every single day. And actually he came in the first day and I sat him down and cause it, the, part of it too was his dad was on the, on the job and his dad was a dick and I was going to take it out on his son, which isn't right, but that's what I was going to do. And I know I sat him down. And I just said, clean slate. I'm not going to fuck with you. I'm going to help you. Let's go. And that's how it's been. And I don't know again why I did that because for 15, 16, 17 years, that was not me. But at some point, I, I just I, I can't keep being this bully, this asshole. You, you know why? Because it's a heavy weight to carry. And you drag that thing around with you, and it weighs you down so much. And we, we're pretending to be somebody we don't want to be. We're trying to put up this front like we're this big, strong individual. Look, it's okay to be strong, but we don't have to take it out on other people. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I was that way. I mean, dude, I got to a point, you, you see in the book, I was physically violent with multiple people at work because of the traumas that I experienced. That wasn't who I was before all of this. I was a happy, happy, very fun guy. But at, when I hit my tipping point, I was, I was sick. I was mentally ill. And I was still going to work. I was showing up intoxicated. It was being swept under the rug. I was taking everything out on everybody around me. I was a bully too. And I fought my entire life against bullies. I'm ashamed of that. I teach my kids, man, like, look, we do not tolerate bullies. We put them in their place immediately. We slap a bully in the mouth. I don't, but I became that person. You know what I mean? Nobody, just nobody ever slapped me in the mouth except reality. Reality finally slapped me in the mouth. And that's what made me realize, holy shit. I turned into a walking fucking nightmare. Yeah. 
I want to go back, if you don't mind, and I want to just talk about. Good. Let's <laughs> touch on because I still think this is hilarious. Touch on you actually joining the Charleston Fire Department. How you got on? Because again, it's a whole different world compared to what I was used to or how it is probably today. You talk right, about so how you got on a Bluffton. <laughs> Charleston, yeah. it's just as crazy. So one day, I, me and a couple of firefighters, we took off. We lived about an hour and a half south of Charleston in mm -hmm. uh, Bluffton, if, about an hour and a half south of Charleston. So one day, a couple of firefighters, man, I think I was around 24 years old, somewhere around there. We said, let's go to Charleston, man. We're going to go up there and see the city and everything. Because to us, Charleston's not a, a metropolitan area compared to like Boston, Chicago, New York. But us, there's several hundred thousand people here. That was a huge city from where I was from, a town of 20,000 people, right? So we go up here and uh, I'm mesmerized by the fire station. The first one, the first fire station that, that we came across downtown is a Meeting Street Firehouse. It's the headquarters. Back then, it was the headquarters, uh, Meeting Street and Wentworth Street in Charleston. 46 and a half Wentworth. And when we saw it, I didn't know where it was. We just happened to drive by it and we immediately pulled over. And I was looking at that firehouse in, in, in awe because it was an old um, 1800 style firehouse, double brick archways, engines backed in so tightly on the sides. You don't even know how they got these engines in there. I mean, it was a tight, tight fit. Two stories. You know, I come from a town where that we had the modern firehouses. They look nothing like a real traditional firehouse. It was the A-list throw up. The, the old steel frame structure, throw the tin roof, you know, the, the typical current sure. fire stations, right? So I had to see inside this thing. So we pulled around back and uh, there's this little tight parking lot and um, the firefighters from the two engine companies were all out back. They happened to be out back and uh, we pulled up and they, they could tell we were lost. We told them we were firemen. So they said, yeah, you guys can park here. So we got out and we started talking and uh, I met a guy named Shane, Shane Albers. And I write about him in my book, but I changed his name in my book for uh, legal purposes because um, Shane's no longer with us and I couldn't get permission to use his name. So I just switched it up in the book. Um, some names in the book are changed. So we, we talked about that earlier. And I met Shane and he took me inside and gave me the grand tour. The other firefighters, man, they weren't as, as excited to be there as I was. You know, the guys that I was with, I mean, they were, they were excited, but they wanted to see the town. But as soon as I saw this firehouse and met these guys, I had, to, I had to get a piece of this, man. And when Shane took me inside, you could just feel the history of the firehouse. You could see uh, where the horses used to pull the carriages out of, out of these buildings, man. And hundreds of years worth of firefighting tradition in here. You could smell the smoke from a recent structure fire they just had. And listening to the stories of those guys talk about the amount of fires as a young guy, a fireman, you know, we don't get on this job because we don't want to fight fire. What do we want? We want to go to every fire we can possibly go to for whatever reason. We want to do that. And I just knew my chances of fighting more fire would be better in Charleston. So I talked to Shane and Shane goes, you want a job? Shane was just an engineer of engine company too at the time. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'd love to work here. And uh, it became a kind of a joke. Like he could get me hired and he took me upstairs, introduced me to the chief that day, like with that conversation. And before I left there, I had a job as a Charleston firefighter. I was, it was blown. I was blown away. What was your rookie school like back then? <laughs> Man, it was, it was a long week, a long <laughs> week, <laughs> one week. I should say four days because Friday was graduation. <laughs> it was a long four days, man. Long four days. But here's the deal. Back then in Charleston Fire Department, they were they wouldn't hire you off the street. They were they would only hire you if you had already been to the state academy. All right. So they were only hiring certified firefighters. Yeah. The city, what they would do when you would come in, I had already went to the state fire academy. I had all the certifications, right? So technically, I did the fire academy. Charleston was nothing more than a, we're going to bust your balls and try to make you quit. We don't want you here unless you proved us you're not going to quit. And that's what they would do in that one week time frame, not comparing it to the Navy SEALs. But the Navy SEALs have, you know, Bud's Hell Week, right? Sure. They don't want you in the rest of the program if you can't make it through that week. Because if you can make it through that week, chances are you're going to be kind of what they're looking for. That, that was the mindset in Charleston. Um, 
they fought a lot of fire back then and they fought it very aggressively. We very, very cowboy mentality. Um, not the typical, we didn't fight fire from the book, that if sack book. We didn't do that. The manual, it was known back then. You can wipe your ass with the manual. We do it our way. Um, so in that week time, I mean, they it's sun up to sundown, constant drills, throwing the um the 35 foot ladder where the book teaches you two to three man throws. We had to do one man 35 foot extension ladder raises, throw the ladder, raise it, place it in all your gear with the SCBA. You had to be able to do that, and they would drop you instantly if you couldn't do it. And, and they lost rookies all the time because of that, you know, because they could not throw a 35 foot extension ladder by themselves. The reason we did that because we were so understaffed back in the day, a lot of times you didn't have an extra hand to help you throw a ladder and they needed to know you could get that thing placed. I used to roll on a damn ladder company with two dudes, just me and a cat back in the day. I mean, it was nuts, man. And, and you go in there, big, big city firefighting two two guys, two man ladder company, bro. I'm telling you, it was fucking crazy. And we would, I didn't, we would fight fire. I remember we had a battalion chief and he's gone now. He's, he's dead now. He would not call a second alarm for nothing. We'd have three houses burning and you had two engine companies and a ladder company and he wouldn't call for help. You better get that fucking fire licked. And if you couldn't do it, heaven forbid, if he had to call for additional units, somebody's ass was getting transferred. And that was the fear back then. It was fear of getting transferred to a slower company. Right. And if that was a death sentence to your career in Charleston fire department, you, you wouldn't be one of the tough guys. And so we went at it with everything we had. And uh, so anyway, to get back to the rookie class, you had a week. And in that week, not only they try to weed you out with throwing heavy ladders, they tried to smoke you out. Literally they would do um, smoke training. Like I, I came from a department where I'd had multiple structure fires, nothing like I was about to experience, but structure fires, nonetheless, it wasn't foreign to me. Well, they took us in their burn tower. They poured diesel fuel inside the burn tower and then they'd light off furniture. So you had furniture burning and diesel fuel and they would take you, make you take your air pack, your, your mask off and make you breathe it in. And you were not allowed to put it back on. You had to take as much as you could possibly take before you could get a go on air we would take in so much of that diesel fuel smoke that we um you couldn't even go back on air you had to get out of the building like we were like literally hacking up to the point where you felt like you were going to die um and what they wanted to do the mindset back then was hey look you're not if you run out of air inside of these buildings you need to know what it's like when you can't breathe so you don't panic so you can hopefully find some form of air right um and then then they would take us and burn this huge diesel pit. No air packs on your back at all. And we'd have a wide fog pattern with a two and a half inch hose line with four of us stacked up on this hose line, four or five of us. And the fire was so enormous, it would literally come around both sides of the, uh, the fog pattern. And the guy in the back of the, the line, it would literally be licking his ass. And you'd have to work that, that fog pattern gently back and forth to try to get this fire knocked down. Um, then they would stick us inside of this metal container and burn pine straw, no air pack on your back. You just had to get in there with burning pine straw and suck up smoke. What in what fucking world are you going to do that? You're not, they wanted you to quit. They didn't want you there. I'm not talking down because I love that fire department. I love where I come from, but this is the mentality that was instilled in me on top of the Marines, on top of the police department. You know what I mean? When we would go to fires, you, it was frowned upon if you didn't at least go into a fire and, and, and eat up a little smoke. You know what I mean? Or especially during overhaul. Why are you wearing your fucking air pack? We do overhaul with no pack on your back at all. Like, it was just, you didn't want to be that guy. That's the world I was in. It's, uh, it's crazy knowing, looking back now, knowing what you did and knowing that your your state is one of the few states that, don't have a cancer presumptive law. I think one of maybe two or three at this point. So, I mean, I, when you, when you discuss all that stuff, I can't help, but just cringe on the inside knowing that I didn't have stuff to that extent, but I did have the mentality of uh, whatever my officer was doing. That's what I was doing. If he wasn't wearing air, I wasn't putting on air. Um, No, you're an overhaul. You're right. Especially when you're the kid, 
you're in there, you're the first one in there, the last one out, and you're not on air. So I look back my early years and I just go, what? And it's all context. And, and, and we didn't, we can be naive, I guess. We didn't know any better. We didn't know that it was this prevalent. I mean, nobody taught me at that point, but I just shake my fucking head like, God, oh. we were, dude, look at it like this. We were killing ourselves and didn't even realize it. Right. Same as with mental health. We don't talk about it. We're killing ourselves. We know better now. We need to do better. I remember fires going in in Charleston and I got multiple people that can back this up. This is not me making up stories. This is real. We would go into fires and guys would literally pull the ceiling down, right? Take an attic ladder, stick it up into the, the rafters. Okay. Climb up there, take a new guy up there and sit in the attic full of hot smoke after the fire's out with no mask on, just a hey, breathe it up. Like for fun. Sit here and breathe it up. Let's see how much we can do. <laughs> what in the fuck? Like, this is real, man. And this wasn't long ago. This was early 2000s. I'm not going to drop names. I went into a fire. We had two, two piss-ripping working fires one day on Rutledge Avenue back then. I was exposed to that. I was brand new. This I was after my rookie class. I was working for somebody else on B shift downtown and I walked into the firehouse that day. I was on coming street. I was riding engine 15 and I said, uh, I said, cap, I said, you think we're going to have a fire today? And he goes, not nah, but drove. We're going to have two. And I was like, Oh shit, two. And I'll be goddamn if we didn't have two fires that day. And then maybe question later, like shit, did he send me some bitches? Um, but no, we had two fires and that's where I was exposed to the, to the rafter drill. I'm not going to drop name, but I was taken in and, we went up and sat in fucking attic smoke after that fire was knocked out. And let's, let's sit here and breathe this to show that you can take it. Crazy, right? It is crazy. Yeah. So you were having a blast there oh, at Charleston, right? Absolutely. I mean, I was living a firefighter's dream. Look, I wasn't a New York City fireman. I was a Chicago fireman. But, dude, I was in Charleston. It's one of the oldest cities in the country. We had tight, tight, tight streets. All the houses, balloon frame, wood frame construction, wood frame, balloon construction, stacked on top of one another. When you get one house going, it is not uncommon to have three or four houses going. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i talking three-story houses, 1,800, 2,000 square foot houses. These motherfuckers would roll. And that's why we in Charles Fire Department back then would use the booster line as a fast attack line. And after the Sofa Superstore came out, it's like we were exposed and this false narrative was written about us like oh these guys only fight fire with boosters no that's not true booster line was a one inch i want to make sure i get it correct it was a one inch line i think it would do 60 gallons a minute something like that that wasn't our primary firefighting line what it was was our primary fast attack line where people would use that on garbage fires sure we would put that because we were undermanned and understaffed we'd grab that because we literally would have you didn't get water on a fire within seconds back then. You had multiple houses going. You'd lose a fucking block, right? So what we would do is we'd take that line, get water on it as fast as possible because all the engineer had to do was pull a lever and that thing was charged versus going and flaking an inch and a half, inch and three quarters line out. You know how long that takes. You got to get it flaked out. You got to get wrapped around the fucking block. You have 500 feet of the shit or your cross laser 150 feet. And now it's all kinked up because our streets are so tight. You can't flake hose out effectively. So what we would do is we'd get two guys in there getting water on something while the, the next engine company, after they tied into their water source or whatnot, would get the other hose lines flaked out. Then they'd come in with the bigger lines and then we'd put the you know inch and a half away. Or I mean the, um, the booster away. So I don't know where I was going with that, but it was just, I was talking about you having fun, having a blast. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, Being a Charleston firefighter. Oh, I saw I knew where I was going. So we fought fire. We fought it aggressively. It was everything you could have wanted as a, as a young 24-year-old, 23-year-old fireman getting all the fire experience. Fuck, we had an arsonist running around back in those days, burning up houses left and right. It wasn't uncommon to pull up because Charleston's a college town. We have College of Charleston down here. I remember pulling up to, to house fires. Where you would pull around, you'd have a three-story house fire going in the front porch. You'd have fucking college kids bailing off of this motherfucker. You'd pull up and they're literally jumping. It's like, what in the fuck is going on? This is real. 
and they, it took him years to catch this arsonist because he, uh, he, the way he was doing it, man, he would do it. He'd disappear for a while. Nobody could find out who he was. And then, uh, then he'd come back and then light up five or six houses. We'd jump house to house to house some nights. You pull into the fire station and bam, you get hit again, another one. And it was everything you could have hoped for. But at some point, this job turned very real too. Yeah. Well, the question I have, and I think it's going to be, we're going to stop this episode, go right in the next episode, but it's, if you're having such a blast, why in the world leave to become a cop? That's going to be the follow-up on next week's 25 Live. We're going to start right there. Sounds good to me, man. We'll explain uh, it all. All right. Okay. See you listeners later. <laughs>